Good morning. Welcome back. Glad you've made it. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we uh, praise you this morning that your mercies are new every uh, morning, that your faithfulness is sure, and we rest in that today. We pray that you would give us ears to hear you speak uh, through your servant John this morning, uh, helping us follow Jesus to wholeness uh, and to the good life, we pray. Amen. Well, okay, here we go. Um, I almost had my uh, other talk up uh, for later, and that would have been interesting. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit today. If you have um, your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 13 and 17. So I don't know if you have like a little piece of paper or something that can keep it in between the two. Um, but we're going to look at the imagery of the, the mustard seed and what that teaches us in sort of resisting the performative life that we've been talking about. A few years ago, I think it was in 2019, uh, Jen and I, my wife, we went and saw um, Terrence Malick's movie, The Hidden Life. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It wasn't very big, um, and we couldn't find a theater to show that was showing it in New York for a while. And then this small little Polish neighborhood in the Lower East Side was... Oh, we've got some Polish people here. That's great. Um, uh, a few, uh, just a small little theater. It held like 30 or 40 people, and it was just us and another couple in, in the theater. And it's the story of this Austrian farmer, Franz Jagerstatter. I don't know if I pronounced it right. Um, but he was called up to fight in World War II, and he refused to take loyalty to Adolf Hitler, which was super costly to not only him, but to his family, and to not only his family, his whole village and community. And um, when it was over, and we left the theater, and we, walk up t- we walked up 2nd Avenue for a long time. We took a long walk together talking about the movie. And what stuck with me was the consistent pushback that Franz was receiving from his community, who were not Nazi lovers, they weren't Hitler fans, uh, and his lawyer and his community about his resistance to Hitler, because Franz was a nobody. He was a farmer who lived in the middle of nowhere. His life had, humanly speaking, little consequence to the world around him. And so the question he was consistently being asked do you think your resistance will do anything? Like, do you think it's going to have any impact on Hitler? Do you think Hitler will even know who you are? And the obvious answer is no. Your resistance is going to have no impact on Hitler, and it's only going to be bad consequences on you and those who are around you. It won't be worth the cost. But despite the cost and despite the loneliness he began to experience more and more, he resisted. Now, a year later, um, I didn't like ruin the movie. Go see the movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, but a year later or so, we wanted to watch this movie with our kids. And I couldn't remember if it had just sort of like adult, adult things. You know, not adult things, but adult things um, for kids. And so I was thinking, is there too much violence? I don't think there's violence. Is there anything? And so, you know, I looked up one of those parent sites um, to say this is – tells parents, hey, this is what's in the movie. This is what to be um, aware of. 
And uh, one of the sites does these, and we like, I think it's called Common Sense Media or something like that. Um, well, I'm about to dog it, so I'm sorry if you're a big fan of the site. I like it usually. I use it a lot. But it has these ratings. It's like if violence, it's four out of five, or if it's, you know, as sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever. And one of the themes is, or one of the ratings is role models. And I thought, oh, five out of five, right? I mean, he, he resisted Hitler. He's a five. Two out of five. And here's what they said. Franz is something of a role model, given that standing up for what he believes in takes tremendous courage, and he risked everything. But at the same time, very little changed or results came from it. <laughs> and I just thought, the critique that Franz heard from his lawyers and his communities and everyone in the movie was exactly that critique. And, and what it seems to be that, I don't know if they just didn't see the movie, or it's a picture that our, our culture is, hit, is skeptical of hidden virtues, and it incentivizes and rewards primarily performative lives. And the, the land is, that we live in is tilted and greased towards a performative way of life. And what I want to consider today is it's likely that our hearts, more than we know, has been formed towards that way, has been shaped towards a performative way of life. There's a conflict between the two, between the secret life with the Father that we talked about last night and the performative life of the world, and that conflict oftentimes is not just out there, but it's in here. That's why Jesus said last night in the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago, don't perform your righteousness before others. And so part of growing up in Christ is to untangle that in our hearts. And, and Jesus shows the potency. So that title of that movie was called The Hidden Life. And Jesus talks about the, really the potency of a hidden life. And he uses the imagery of, of seeds. So if you want to turn to Matthew 13, I'm going to read both passages. Matthew 13, verse 31 He said um, to them, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now keep your finger there, maybe flip over uh, to Matthew 17. And here, Jesus is not talking about the kingdom. He's talking about faith. 17, verse 20. He says, uh, For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is using this imagery of mustard seed to talk about the kingdom, what is the nature of the kingdom, its dynamic, its power, and the nature of your faith, how your faith ought to match the dynamic of the kingdom. Your, your faith ought to look like what the kingdom is like. And he uses this mustard seed 
it's a provocative imagery. It's, it's an old rabbinical imagery of something that's insignificant and small, which is pretty provocative probably back in the first century. You, you'd kind of wonder, what, why is he talking about the kingdom of God as if it's insignificant? And the kingdom of God is, is, not, um, is not small. Jesus isn't talking necessarily that, about the, the, the vast and gloriousness of the kingdom, that it's going to grow like a big tree and the whole world will rest in the kingdom. Every, everyone knew how big and glorious the kingdom of God was. What Jesus was trying to get is to, is to see that the kingdom of God is oftentimes experienced and seen in the world as very small and insignificant, humanly speaking as an insignificant and hidden dynamic. So if you notice in chapter 13, Matthew 13, uses the imagery of mustard seed. And then in chapter 17, he uses the same imagery to understand our faith. There's a mustard seed dynamic to both our faith and the kingdom of God. In other words, our participation in the kingdom of God has to match the mustard seed dynamic of the kingdom of God. Both have to be mustard seed-like. What that means is, remember yesterday, our culture is, has shaped us into certain kinds of impulses from expressive individualism, the expression of the, the fulfillment of the self is the highest ideal. It's the highest ethical ideal of our world to a performative individualism that I have to put on display my self-fulfillment. And I have to have a kind of life that shows my income, my success, my tastes, and these things are admirable, lovable. You want people to want your life in order to have a sense of self. The performance... Siri thinks I'm asking her something, sorry. Um, all right, stick with me. Don't, don't get lost. Uh, the performative impulse is in conflict with the kingdom dynamic of a mustard seed that's hidden and insignificant. The performative life must be seen in order to feel okay. All right, that's what we've been shaped to think. The perf- our, we, we must be seen and admired in order to feel okay about ourselves. A mustard seed faith must be okay with being looked over, ignored, and hidden. Okay? That, and that's what it means to be able to participate in the, the kingdom of the mustard seed. I mean, think about a mustard seed. It's small. My wife has in her spice cabinet a mustard seed, a uh, little bottle of mustard seeds. It's, they're tiny. You, you've seen them, right? You look in your hand, and you drop them, and you go, okay, I have no idea where they went, right? Or if you think about it, if you put them into a ground and you just look away for a second and you look back down into the ground, you have no idea where you put it. It's small. It's insignificant. It's, it's hidden. And Jesus says that mustard seed grows into something great. But notice, listen, Jesus isn't saying that the kingdom and our faith grows from something small and hidden into something great and attention-grabbing. That's not what he's talking about. The growth is in 
congruency and integrity to the nature of the seed. So you think about Jesus' life, right? He came from the sticks. Remember what it says in John chapter 2 when they heard he's from Nazareth, right? What good can come from Nazareth? He came from nobody and from nowhere. He didn't begin his ministry with a thunderclap. In fact, in in John chapter 2, his first miracle... We talked about this yesterday, remember? His first miracle was the, the water into wine. He got egg off the face of the, of the groom, right? Saved his rear, and the master of the ceremony looked like a hero. No one who had any importance of the party knew who did it. Do you know who did know? Do you know? The servants knew. The only people who knew the miracle, who saw the miracle, were the people who you're supposed to ignore in order to have a good time. They're supposed to be invisible. And they're the people who saw the miracle. The first sign of Jesus, this was his calling card. Or think about a few chapters later, the first time, at least according to the Gospels, the first time he says he's the Messiah, do you know who he says it to? The Samaritan woman at the well. Someone who has a deviant past, apparently. Who's a social and religious outcast. And these are the people who he begins his public redemptive kingdom ministry with. They're social nobodies. I mean, if Jesus had a publicist, he would be really frustrated with Jesus, right? Do your wine trick before the influencers, right? Do loop-de-loops over the Sea of Galilee. Wow, people. But the mustard seed parables are here trying to not just explain some abstract kingdom out there. Jesus is really explaining. If you're wondering why you're confused about me, it's because I'm more like a mustard seed than a thunderclap. This is how the kingdom works, and this is how we participate in it. And so nevertheless, Jesus' life and influence does grow, right? He becomes ignorable to unignorable. But this this wasn't just the, the human influence or propaganda or hype. This was the outcome of someone who consistently labored with the presence of God and in the kingdom of God. It's not through cultural influence. It's not through hype. It was through the impact of healing and being with outcasts and being with sinners. He ate. That's what he's known for, right? He ate and drank with sinners. And um, the performative kingdoms of this world, they, they grab. But the kingdom of God grows, The kingdoms of this world reach and grasp, but the kingdom of God is slowly growing in the same way that a mustard seed is growing. And I don't know how to get get around this. I would love to say, we I mean, we were wrestling with this in some of the the Q&A last night. What what does it mean to, to have influence in this world, to use your gifts and to be able to 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 have an impact in this world, right? When Jesus says, go to the ends of the earth. And baptizing and teaching them to follow my commands. That's a huge, you're going, to, you're, you're going global. It's a huge impact. 
But it doesn't get around this fact that we have to participate in the kingdom of God in a mustard seed way. It doesn't seem practical in getting things done. It doesn't seem a way to have at least godly influence. But I, I don't know how to get around it. Um, I don't think we can just go along with the performative world. It's in deep conflict with the kingdom of, of God. It feels very impractical. It feels very unworkable. It can also at times feel very embarrassing and lonely and humiliating. But it's the pattern of the Gospels. It's the pattern of the Psalms. It's the pattern of Paul's prison letters. It's the pattern of the prophets. And so if we want to participate in, in the movement of the kingdom, which we're called to do, we have to die to the world's pattern of influence. We, we have to die to, to grabbing for attention, grabbing for influence, grabbing in order to be seen, displaying ourselves before the eyes of the world in order to have a sense of self and feel like we're doing okay. And so the only, the only path that I see that authentically participates in the kingdom of God is to die to the performative life and live in a hidden and oftentimes ignorable way with Jesus. Because the performative life at the end of the day, this is what Jesus is trying to get us to see, is, is really fragile. It's a really fragile life. It doesn't actually work. Now, if you get, go back to Matthew 13, verse 32, he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, Jesus is talking about a kind of growth, a kingdom growth that grows and grows and grows so that the nations, this is imagery for the nations, can come and find rest in the kingdom of God. The, the world is, is drawn to it. And what's interesting, I don't know if you've ever seen this, is that Jesus is actually using the same language that's used in Daniel 4 to describe Babylon. Jesus is using the way, the imagery, the way in which Nebuchadnezzar uh, uses it to describe his Babylonian kingdom. In uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 12, he says, this is what Nebuchadnezzar, who's just kind of pontificating about how great his kingdom is, he says, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. All the beasts of the field found shelter under it in shade and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. And here's Jesus saying like, no, that's, the, that's like the kingdom of God, only better. And what he's doing, he's contrasting these two kingdoms. You have the Babylonian kingdom and you have the kingdom of God. And the boast of Babylon was that it would be great. And all the nations would rest in it. It would be the most relevant and lasting kingdom. And it was great. It's Babylon. I was watching uh, an interview with a, a man, and uh, he was saying he was, at, I forgot who it was, but it was interesting. He, uh, someone asked where he was from. He was like, well, I'm, I'm Assyrian. 
And the guy thought he said Syrian. He goes, no, 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 it's Assyrian, like Babylon. And it's still in our imagination, but Babylon's gone. Like, there is no Babylon. Babylon was great. It lasted, but it has passed now. And by the time that Jesus is giving the parable of the mustard seed, Babylon is history. Its greatness has disappeared. It's been one powerhouse after another. I mean, since Babylon, since Daniel 4, it's gone from Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And now none of those nations are what they were. It's passing and fleeting. In a matter of several hundred years, none of these nations have continued in the same form. What is interesting, though, in the New Testament, Babylon seems to kind of stick in the imagination of, of uh, New Testament writers when trying to describe the world and its systems. I mean, just think of Revelation, right? Babylon the Great. But here, Babylon, we're meant to see that Babylon in, inflates itself and overpromises. The promise of Babylon is this. Enter in. Enter in. And join in our vision of the good life. Follow our patterns. Embrace our values, our priorities, and you will experience, as Nebuchadnezzar said, the beauty, the leaves, the fruit, the shade of its tree. You will experience the abundance of life and rest for your souls. I mean, isn't that what we're really looking for? Whenever we're trying to just participate in the the performative elements of this world, we're just looking for rest for our souls, right? And that's what it's promising us. Now, the promise we don't really... Uh, when we think about the American dream or the, the, the Western world's view of the good life, we don't talk about the beauty of the leaves or the fruits and the shades of the tree. We, we sort of think about what, what are the promises today? And, and uh, Thomas Merton said in the 50s, he, he calls it relative omnipotence. If you know what omnipotence, omnipotence is, is the, the power of God. It's ultimate, absolute. Well, there's a relative omnipotence that we're promised He says, in our desire to be as gods, a lasting deformity impressed in our nature by original sin, we seek what one might call a relative omnipotence, the power to have everything we want, to enjoy everything we desire, to demand that all our wishes be satisfied and that our will should never be frustrated or opposed. This claim to omnipotence, our deepest secret and our inmost shame, is in fact the source of all of our sorrows, all our unhappiness, all our dissatisfactions, all our mistakes and deceptions. It is a radical falsity. Enter in and participate in our vision of the good life and you will experience a relative omnipotence. Now, you never hear like a Visa ad say, you want relative omnipotence? You don't hear that. But here's, here's maybe more of the language that we hear. It's this promise or a longing for maximum freedom and maximum control, right? A maximum control of your life. You can be who you want. You can curate your own identity. You can form your own destiny. You can justify your own existence, right? What's the the book, the Alan Noble, right? I, I belong to myself. No, you don't. But it's the promise. 
or maximum freedom. In, in the modern imagination, the highest form of injustice is to restrict someone's sexual or consumer freedoms. Right? That's the, that's the progressive or the conservative sin or the promise. Right? The progressive promise is never, ever restrict my sexual freedoms. The conservative promise is never, ever restrict my consumer freedom. And so here, here we have a, a world that isn't just baddies on the left or baddies on the right. It's just the promises of Babylon that goes, well, whatever your heart wants. Maximum freedom and maximum control in our modern world is a vision of wholeness. But it's also the seedbed of all kinds of idolatry, right? In other words, it tries it's best to give us a sense, even if you don't have the resources to live it, but to give you a sense that you can purchase. I mean, JJ just said this earlier, right? You can have that book on your doorstep this afternoon, and you don't even have to leave here tomorrow morning even. (laughs) She's living the good life back there. But, I mean, the sense that we get is that we can purchase anything at any time. You can fly anywhere at any time, unless it's Southwest, right? And that that got bad. (laughs) You can curate any kind of image. You can express your individualism. There are whole industries that are built around maximum freedom and maximum control in order to give you at least the sense that you can do what you want, be you want, and get what you want. Until one little bug is released into the system at the beginning of 2020. And whole industries in a matter of a few days are shut down. I mean, I know there have been times probably in history that's happened, but none of us have been alive to experience something like that. We're at, I mean, and I don't want to. I don't want to debate about COVID. I'm not arguing anything. Whatever the worldview is behind what we think about COVID is, I don't want to talk about that. But what I do want, I don't think anyone can argue, is that COVID exposed just how fragile Babylon is. All the industries shut down. Babylon's fragile. And Jesus is trying to get you to see the kingdom of God may seem insignificant and small and hidden. And Babylon may seem really relevant and strong and big. Babylon's fragile. Babylon's going away. The kingdom of God is not. It may feel overwhelming. Babylon may feel overwhelming. It may feel like the most relevant, the most powerful. But it's been inflated. It's overpromising. So it's important to grasp that you may feel fragile. Your faith may feel really fragile. Your church, maybe it's this one, maybe it's another one that you're a part of in the city, or the big church may seem really fragile. But Jesus is trying to get you to grasp that Babylon is what's fragile. That's not going to last. And so what Jesus is pushing is don't bet on Babylon. 
bet on the kingdom. Babylon's fragile, and when you hope and participate in the fragile systems and promises of Babylon, who's fragile, you yourself become fragile. So maybe, maybe some of the fragility that you're feeling in your life right now is not so much the faith doesn't seem to work for you, it's that you've been, you've been buying into the promises of Babylon too much. When you hope in, a, in the promises of the good life in a fragile system, you will become fragile. There's a research project at Baylor University in the Psychological Bulletin. I actually uh, was referencing it in the Q&A yesterday. And they've been studying uh, young adults from ages 18 to 35 from two, 2000 to 2018 or something like that, and over a, a span of time. And they, they studied a phenomenon they called performative presentation. And it's, it says, the need to present their lives in such a way in order to experience approval and belonging, which would have been a great definition yesterday if I would have given that, but it's theirs. A, a performative presentation, the need to present their lives in such a way in order to experience approval and belonging, and they said this, there's a strong link, a strong link uh, between this performative pres- presentation and to suicide and self-harm. In Britain, the number of adults reporting self-harm between 2000 and now, or I guess it was probably 2019 when the study came, the, the number of adults reporting self-harm between 2000 and then uh, was more than doubled. Eating disorders and body dysmorphia in the U.S. and the U.K. has risen by 30% over that same amount of time. The same study shows that over 51% more adults felt overwhelmed, stressed, and anxious than they did in 2009. 51%. Depression rose by 95% in that same period of time. And they're pointing out is that young adults are becoming more and more fragile who are trying to live this performative presentation. And I, and I just think that's just what we're talking about, the performative individual. That we're banking our lives on a performative world that is built on a fantasy. And so when you build your life on a fantasy, a fragile one, you yourself become fragile. And it's just become more and more evident. And so... Um, Jesus wants us to plant our hearts in, in different soil. And uh, in Matthew 17, if you want to flip over there, sorry if that's annoying. Um, in Matthew 17, Jesus actually gives us a little bit more detail about what it means to participate in this mustard seed kingdom. Because this, uh, the phrase that he talks about, um, your faith being like a mustard seed, is actually set within a story. It comes out of of a circumstance where a a father had come to the disciples of Jesus when Jesus wasn't there with a young boy who needed healing. And the son had been controlled by a demon and was causing seizures and it was throwing him into water or fire. And the disciples couldn't heal him. And they were bewildered by this. And this story, I think, is so important to the Gospels that Mark, Luke, and Matthew all tell the same story. 
which is, I, I think is a unique indicator that, okay, something's here. It's not just a story of a miracle. There's a repetition here that we ought to pay attention to. And the, the Gospel of Luke gives a little bit more insight of what's happening in this scene. It's framed by, in pre, previous to the story, are, are these two missions that the disciples have gone on back at the beginning of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 of these missions that Jesus sends his disciples on, and all of them were incredibly fruitful. They came back, and the gospel was preached, and people were healed, and the disciples actually, the one detail they said was that even the demons were subject to them in Luke 10, verse 17. And it was so fruitful that Jesus claimed, he says, oh yeah, I know, it was great. In fact, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I have never received feedback like that from my sermons, right? (laughs) Can you imagine Jesus giving that kind of feedback? I'm sure they felt really good. It was so fruitful. But the demon they encountered in this story was too much for them. What happened? They had this immense season of fruitfulness and success. They had power. They had influence. And then suddenly they met an enemy. They had little power or capacity to overcome. And when they asked Jesus why, we get this mustard seed statement. Now, when Jesus describes um, the mustard seed faith, we immediately think size, and that's what we've sort of focused on, or the hiddenness of it. And I think that is certainly part of what Jesus is, is getting at. But I think within the context of some of the stories of the success and the confidence that the disciples had, I wonder if a more penetrating point about the mustard seed faith is not so much the size of the faith, but the object of their faith. I wonder if it's possible that they'd begin to trust their own gifts and their own resources instead of the, the power of Jesus. They'd seen when they'd gone to the town after town after town, I have the goods. I have the ability to, to say the name of Jesus and people are healed. People are awed. I, I'm doing pretty well. They seemed to believe that they had everything they needed to cast out this demon and more. You could say they probably had the faith the size of mountains in themselves. And Jesus is trying to say, if you would just have faith the size of a mustard seed in me, you could move mountains. Jesus is correcting them by saying, look, your faith can never, ever be in yourself. That is the Babylonian kingdom working out in you. Come back to the mustard seed kingdom and work with different strategies and different methods. It's interesting in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, who tells this story. Um, he goes on to talk about the methods and the strategies of the mustard seed kingdom. And he says, uh, demons like this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Isn't it remarkable that Jesus here is saying faith, prayer, and fasting are the things that you need when the times get tough and 
beyond your capacity to control things. Jesus doesn't give a technique on how to get the job done. He doesn't give like a little TED talk on how to cast out the really big demons. Prayer and fasting. And, you know, prayer and fasting are not expressions of strength and control. They're hidden, even, instead of performative, right? Fasting is not something that you get good at. You just get weaker in, right? You kind of (laughs) fade in fasting. And you don't become an expert in prayer. In fact, Jesus encourages you to become more childlike in prayer. Jesus is actually telling you when things get hard and out of your control, you don't reach for more and more of your resources and skill sets. You reach more and more for your neediness and longing. They're habits that give witness to the fact that you are not sufficient. But Jesus is, right? They're they're really spiritual practices of people who've come to the end of themselves. So when Jesus says, you've faced a demon that you can't control or cast out, you don't roll up your sleeves and look for different resources that you can reach for and do yourself. You come to the end of yourself. And you reach for Christ. We reach for mustard seed kingdom dynamics and press into hidden Practices, practices that are unseen and ignorable by the Babylonian world. There are no 60-minute segments on someone who prays and fasts all the time. There isn't. There are people who are really good at their jobs and able to accomplish the good life through, through doing this and that. But these practices align with the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to see the, the potency of the hiddenness of the kingdom. To bury yourself like a seed in prayer and fasting. And that's where the potency is. Our world will point us in 50 different directions to find potency in some worldly strategy. But Jesus tells us to die to those things and reach for the hidden ways with the kingdom. Let's pray. Um, Father, um, before we continue on talking about anything else, I ask for mercy that the ways in which we feel very tied to and even maybe strung along in this performative world would, by the power of your spirit, would you, would you liberate us that, from that? Would you give us the joy of, of seeking the secret place with your, with your Father and experiencing his voice and his presence? Would we see the fruit that comes from that? Would you give us witnesses in our communities who have been doing that for a long time and they're joyful and they're free and they're fruitful? So help us, Father, to, to trust in the ways of the kingdom and not the world to seek after Christ who really did live the good life and to follow in his ways. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.